Hi, I'm Paul Kent. I'm the founder and managing director at SureSwipe. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Paul. Great. Uh, good to be here, Andile. Thanks. Well, perhaps let's start um, with a little bit about you and the journey that leads you here to, you know, speaking to me about a startup you founded uh, and one that's operating in the payment space. Yeah, I think our journey is a little bit different to others. We started not within the, within a garage, but uh, within another company. I was working at, at Healthbridge at the time. We really found a need in the doctor market where a lot of the the medical benefits, the private benefits in South Africa were changing and doctors needed uh, to move from just medical insurance claims through to other mechanisms of payment. And we were in, a, I think, a good timing. And we, we partnered with a bank, Capitech, who were really looking f- just to get into that space. So we put a, a product ad, a product extension to our existing business. And uh, we had a little bit of success there. And the idea came out of that to take it out of healthcare um, into the broader market because we saw a need for independent retailers really to have uh, decent fees at a very, very good service levels, which they weren't getting from the major banks at the time. I'm going to want us to come back to this because it, the notion of corporate bread innovation is one that interests me. And I think one at uh, a lot of companies across the continent are trying to engineer in some way or form and definitely worth talking about. But tell me a little bit about what SureSwipe does. So SureSwipe, I mean, in 2008, when we entered, the there was only four banks that could provide merchant services, which is really ability for businesses to accept credit and debit card payments. Smaller merchants, what we term independent retailers, they were underserviced and overcharged as much as 5 6% at the time. And to get an installation at a small merchant, it took up to 30 days. Um, if there was a problem with the machine, with the hardware, which you know 10 years ago was quite common, it would take seven days to come and fix and repair that machine. So there's a lot of revenue lost for these independents. And you know, small businesses, they... Uh, you just take out a small part of their revenue and they really, you know, they're survivalists. Yeah. And I mean, you were talking about the the sort of size and scale of business, which typically might have only one machine, for instance, as opposed to uh, a pick and pay or, you know, some other larger retailer that have like seven. So if one stops working, no problem. Yeah, sure. That's exactly it. And, and even to the point where businesses that were a certain turnover, the banks actually declined them because they just didn't have that, that, the number of transactions to go through the, the, those machines that made it economically viable for the banks at that stage. Similar to how the banks continue to go about deciding where to put an ATM, for example, uh, only neighborhoods and areas that weren't, that can sort of guarantee the bank the sort of transaction traffic that justifies the, the investment, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. But part of it is, uh, you know, you need to get an economic return. I mean, that's part of doing business. But I think what the banks do very differently to the likes of SureSwipe is they run very expensive infrastructure. They run very expensive services. They've got those wonderful big buildings that they pay a lot of rent for. And we really look at how do we how do we operate something at a at a real decent operating cost in order for us to provide services to that smaller, more independent uh, merchants that really need those services. For the uh, benefit of people who aren't familiar with the South African payment space or familiar with the continent in general, how would you go about describing your products and and perhaps cite some global examples of, I suppose, lookalikes, if you like? 
I think everyone will be familiar with uh, have a, if they've got a bank account, they've got a bank card. So the product itself is quite simple. It's a, it's a simple card machine that goes into retailers. You go in, instead of paying cash, you pull out your credit card or your debit card, you swipe that or you insert it, put in your PIN, and the transaction's processed. So that's a, it's a commoditized product, to be honest, around the world. Um, in South Africa, it's been very dominated and protected by the four large banks. Um, and in 2008 was the first time that it really started opening up and letting what we would call payment service providers, uh, non-acquirers or non-financial institutions, the ability to start acquiring um, on behalf of those independents. So where we would provide the sales, the service, the support, but we still get into the banking infrastructure via a sponsored bank. So it, it's, it almost gives the best of two worlds. You've got this uh, agile company offering wonderful service, big distribution and sales teams, but you still get the protection and the security of the reserve bank or the, the, in, the central bank infrastructure. So what changed um, several years ago to allow you, you know, players like you in? You know, I was speaking to a, an investor, you know, recently who, who reckons that this space is entirely ripe for consolidation because of the, the commoditization you, you, you referenced. And he reckons that's because, you know, it's, it's a space race for, for brand recognition, um, brand ubiquity, uh, perhaps even critical mass by um, some other metrics. So um, two questions at once. What changed to let you in? And is this investor I've been speaking to right about his perception of the space? So I think the biggest change was Capitec Bank got a what at the time was what they call a acquiring license. So before that, they were just issuing cards and issuing accounts. And then they started acquiring uh, transactions from retailers. And they were quite open because they wanted to get critical mass quite quickly. They were open to work with a independent, which is typically a sales organization at that stage. So that was one of the critical moments um, of, of us starting. Before that, there was another, probably one player in the market doing something similar, and quite rapidly it um, it opened up, and and the banks started opening up, realizing the the benefit of having sales organisations on the ground, and now there's there's uh, probably thirty payment service providers, either in store or what we'd call physical card acceptance, and uh, and or online. What do you make of this notion that this area is ripe for, you know, for, for consolidation? So I think, you know, I'd mentioning there's probably 30, maybe more payment service providers. Scale is critical in this space. So a lot of them will be either survivalists. They may be breaking even at best, uh, year on year. So it's probably getting to a stage where those independents are ripe for consolidation for acquisition and i mean we're, we're one of them that's that's looking at that and trying to drive that let's go back to something you touched on earlier which is you know how the company was born and uh i've said on the show before that visitors to to, to the sort of startup ecosystems in johannesburg and, and cape town for example would be remiss if they didn't appreciate that some of the best innovation won't be found at the local co-working hub or um, in some of the obvious places that run these tours to come visit and see, you know, look and see and, or, you know, show and tell and that kind of thing. Um, and not to knock what's happening there, because I'm sure they, you know, there's good work happening, you know, some startups worth, you know, have taking a sniff at. But um, I would hazard that there's a lot of 
underground activity that's happening within organizations, within, you know, corporate incumbents, in perhaps some of the greener, leafier suburbs of both Johannesburg and, and Cape Town in places that, you know, one wouldn't necessarily visit if they came in town for a quote-unquote innovation tour. So with that sort of backdrop set, you know, talk me through, you know, several years ago when you were starting up, what was your role within, you know, the holding company that allowed you to spawn this idea, grow it out, and then later spin it out? It's wonderful for a company to start within another business. I think the one is it gave us such security around roles, around financial security. A lot of that does come out of, of, of spinning a business from, a, from an existing company. One of the difficult parts is often they try to keep that business within and I think one of the biggest successes that we had at SureSwipe is they allowed us to become a, an independent organization, not a department within another company. So it really became a self-standing business unit. And I think that was one of the key things that we, that we did at the time and something that we try and do at SureSwipe. You know, we've got, although we just, we provide um, payment, merchant payment facilities, we do other products that we add on because we've got this wonderful customer base and we try and get that same level of entrepreneurship coming out of a, of a, a division that is, it's got its own balance sheet, its own income statement, um, but it's got some of that security of having, a, I guess, a, a, mother, a mothership. Do you remember some of the things you had to negotiate with, with your ex-co, with your board in terms of like getting started? Did you sell them the vision of a standalone business at the time or were you smart enough to realize that kill it if, you, if they heard anything like that? Funny enough, I, I didn't start the product called SureSwipe. It was really, it was uh, uh, one of my colleagues, that's actually our CIO, Stephen LaRue. He was on that project team. Another ex-colleague, uh, David Reinders, he was on the product team that actually built the product, negotiated, got the contracts in place with, with Capitech and then kind of handed it over to a sales team that was uh, selling healthcare and switching and SureSwipe merchant services. And it was kind of doing all right. Um, but I think the opportunity that we saw was that it's got to be outside of just healthcare. So the decision was made at a, at a management level. I'm, I can't remember what triggered off the discussion, but it was probably something like, you know, we needed to do something different to hit targets. And one of the ideas was, well, let's spin SureSwipe off and not just go into the, the medical field, but into the broader retail. And that triggered the idea of a separate business unit called SureSwipe. So there are a lot of innovation architects, hub runners listening to us now, um, a lot of corporate professionals who inhabit that role within large incumbents. Um, it's a big deal now to try and manufacture the kind of innovation that, you know, Healthbridge has successfully spawned in short swipe. So give them some advice on how to handle mavericks like you or spot the potential of, of mavericks like you who might not necessarily be in the organization yet. Yeah, I think it was. And, and you know, coming having a secure job, for me, having a secure job at that time, there was a little bit of a nudge and a push from, from other um, part of the Manco team that without that, maybe I wouldn't have jumped, jumped into it so wholeheartedly. But the biggest component was really around that independence. Really got to break the ties, allow them the, the ability to do things their way. 
you know, often it's, well, this is how we do it at a corporate level. So you've got to do that at a startup. And a startup is completely different. And we have even at SureSwipe, we're going through that same thing now where we've got some really um, new business units that are being hindered by SureSwipes and SureSwipes need for resources, development, et cetera. And they kind of get put to the back the bottom of the pile. And I think the real key element for it was that just allowed us to go free, make our own decisions, and, you know, cap it with some some commitment to some funding. Um, we were quite fortunate. We, we looked at from a startup, the product was built or a MVP was built. And the the I guess the philosophy that I had taken it out there wasn't to build the most amazing product. It was say, well, we've got something good enough to sell and we try to build an amazing sales arm. You know, you can have the best product in the world, but if you can't sell it, you're not going to be successful. And then we kind of went the other way around. Let's, let's get a product out there, which fortunately at the time people were, uh, a little bit more open to not having the perfect product available. Much more difficult if someone was starting in the payment sector now. You've got to have the full, complete product ready. So we, I think time to market was important for us. What year are we talking here? Uh, 2008. Yeah, so were there any hard lines or perhaps lines drawn in the sand during that period around this has to work um, by such and such a time and or we need to see results of such and such a nature in order to justify continued investment etc so we were fortunate we didn't have those discussions and we we got to the point in year one we were cash flow positive so it was like it's just an amazing success story going from we started with probably 200 customers that we brought across from the healthcare from Healthbridge, and within the first year we were funding ourselves so let's talk about Healthbridge because so that you know we have the full picture. For people who don't understand or know about Healthbridge, give us a sense of what that company does, again, to help us join the dots in terms of the birthing story of this company, of SureSwap. So I think Healthbridge started from an entrepreneurial journey as well. It was uh, 1999, I think it was. It started, and, and really at that stage, you can think about um, – claims between a, a medical practice and a medical insurer were either sent through paper, which was the most common, or the real tech-savvy ones used to you know, batch it and send an electronic batch, EDI batch, at the end of every day or every week. So Healthbridge came into the market putting in what we call real-time claims, um, processing directly into the insurer. So the doctor had uh, whether and would send it immediately as you, you leave the doctor's practice. He would get a response saying that it would be guaranteed to be paid. And, and that was the real core of this, just this real-time response coming from the medical insurers, confirming, first of all, that it's a valid patient, but also confirming that they've got an insurance benefit available to make good on that payment. Instead of having them having to either send something into the ether and wait till you get a response from a, a paper claim, or phoning up the insurer to say, does Paul have insurance? It was actually just done part of the a part of the software system. What would you say has been the greatest departure from the initial vision? That's part of your core offering now. I think Healthbridge was very much a technology company, and sales were needed as a means to, of course, you have to sell your product out there. But from an organizational point of view, they were really into technology, and business workflows within doctors' practices. We saw things a lot more simple. We think 
card payments or card acceptance as a commoditized product. And so to differentiate at a technology level, at a product level at the time was virtually impossible. So it really started talking about setting up the business as a sales and service organization. And that was kind of the big difference between the health bridge of the technology company and SureSwipe, which was real sales and marketing company. And so when you think about when you first started out and now, what, uh, a decade later, what would you say has been the biggest innovation on that notion? Pivot maybe or moonshot? <laughs> yeah, so, so we, we, you know, now payments has become much more technology driven. Um, at the time, it was card only. Uh, yeah, contactless has come in, but it's still card. But we're really seeing a lot now in QR payments. We're looking at uh, digital POS systems with MPOS connected to that. So very much uh, cheaper devices that are in the market. And we've moved certainly from a sales organization to much more. We run our own technology stacks now. So we build our own products or we licensing products, we packaging them and bringing, bringing them to market. But we still go back to, you know, we've got more than one product to sell now because we've got an MPOS solution. We've got uh, the traditional card machines that you, you see in most retailers. We also integrate directly into point-of-sale point vendors. So MPOS being a, a mobile payment, uh, payment portal, right? That's exactly it. So it's that little card device that talks via Bluetooth to, to a mobile device. Um, Square in the US is probably the perfect example to use iZettle in Europe. And so tell me how you think about potential collaborators, potential clients, potential licensors. How do you, what filter do you use to evaluate the market for those different groups? Given how no one's staying in their lane and you're in a highly commoditized space, how do you know that you're not putting yourself in a, in a partnership situation or a licensing situation that will essentially disrupt your business? Yes. So we think about it from a client point of view, from a customer. So if we think about the, the, the product that we started with, yes, it can be used across a multitude of size customers, yeah, but it's not optimal. So we really looked and said for, for independent retailers that do small volume um, you know, kind of look, look at it, volume of transactions, a standalone device is perfect. Um, but if you have a higher volume business, quick service restaurants, for example, uh, multi-stores, if you're slightly larger independent, maybe you've got uh, ambitions to open more than one store franchise out, really you want more control over the the transaction speed. You want to reduce your... Uh, your admin burden, and that then you start getting payments integrated into your point of sale system, um, and that's a real you know it's a much better product for that type of business. And then on the other scale, we really looked at saying if we really want to expand our target market, we've got to go look into the smaller, more informal types of businesses that in South Africa can't afford the $20 or the 400 rand rental fee for a traditional standalone payment terminal. And that's where MPOS came into play. And so we really looked around, you know, if we wanted not just to expand our client base, but expand the target market, we looked at getting different products that suit the different business needs. So that's how we looked at it from, from a product point of view. And then how we picked our suppliers. Yeah, lots of suppliers around the world. Um, for MPOS, we, we were fortunate in the early days. We found, uh, looked at a few companies and found actually a company called Handpoint. They operate out of Iceland. 
and they've got an office in London. They've got um, they do a license agreement around in, in different parts of the world. But we license their technology for South Africa, and it was already up and running in other markets. So localizing it for South Africa was it's never easy, but it did give us a sense of comfort that it would give us um, speed to market. So I suppose I'm also just thinking in terms of your origin story, the the partnership with Capitec Bank. I imagine partnerships with big scale players like that would be important for growth. And that's kind of what I had more in mind when I asked the question. I, I you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what your business development cycle might look like, um, how you prioritize key accounts or key partnerships and uh, how important partnering with people with existing scale or, you know, reach within market, et cetera, et cetera. How does that factor into your strategy? Yes. So Capitec was from a getting off the ground as an amazing bank, an amazing partner to work with. They gave us the sponsorship we need. They gave us the rails into the banking infrastructure. We, we no longer um, use them as a sponsor We had a, we, for the first five years. And they taught us a lot about banking, a lot about acquiring. And for us starting in the market as almost one of the first payment service providers, having that known brand behind us, was uh, was definitely needed. You know. Sorry, let's just contextualize. Capitec in South Africa, a lot of people rating Capitec as the arguably the biggest um, disruptive influence in mainstream banking, well, uh, retail banking here in South Africa to come out in a long time to take on the likes of First National Bank, Ned Bank, ABSA certainly, um, and Standard Bank, helping to popularize mining the green fields for, for business uh, growth at a time when the bigger banks couldn't be bothered or frankly, when they could be bothered, couldn't figure out a way to, to do so profitably or you know profitably enough so yeah i don't know if i've i've sort of created a backdrop that's suitable for someone who doesn't know the market yeah i mean capitec were amazing bringing um bringing banking to the mass consumers you know they do it at what five rand an account i think is something like that these days but they're really consumer focused so for them to get into acquiring which is actually business focused was was an unusual step but they i think you know they they plan in the long term and, and really went into it. So at some point, they'll be getting into business banking, not just consumers. And it'll be interest, interesting to see what they do there. But for us, you know, going into an independent store, imagine coming into a retailer. We're talking about SureSwipe. Um, we want to put our card machine in there and manage your funds. It's like, you know, the most trusted thing you need is the money that flows through your accounts to be secure. So as a as a retailer back in 2008 this was just unheard of that a bank is, that a non-bank is trying to offer this service. I mean to the point uh, I'll never forget we probably 2009 I think I got a got a call from one of our sales agents. He was in the back of a police van and he'd been pitching his the business to a small uh, to a small uh, restaurant and two off-duty police officers were having lunch at the restaurant and heard the story and thought doesn't sound right you know only banks can offer that service and literally threw him in the back of the van and he had to phone me to try and explain to the policeman that no we're a legitimate legitimate business offering a legitimate service so that's a crazy story yeah so so we had some of those you know some great stories like that in the early days and that's when we really we leaned a lot on capitec as a brand just to get that build up some of the credibility until either SureSwipe was uh, well known or become more common for non-banks to offer merchant services 
So from a regulatory standpoint, are you a financial services company? At which point do you transition from a technological enabler or you know service provider to a financial services entity? We're hindered at this stage to get into a f- provide the full financial services. The Payment Association of South Africa and the Reserve Bank rules don't allow it. So we're still dependent on a bank. We're still dependent to process via Visa MasterCard via a banking platform. So from a regulatory point of view, we have a, what we call a sponsor bank. They, they provide the rails into the banking infrastructure and they provide the regulatory oversight that's needed for a payment service provider to operate. So founders listening to us right now, that's probably a key piece of this puzzle where it's like you could have this amazing dream or innovation in this space. Uh, only so many ways to crack this nut, it sounds like. You still have to be friends with the large banks at this stage. Uh, and I think it's going to be like that for a while. You know, there's innovation is an amazing thing and it can enable a lot. But we're still in the banking world. We're dealing with people's money. So there's this fine balance between risk and innovation. We often think that the, the regulator is behind, but there's a role to play there. So now we partner with Mercantile, Mercantile Bank Limited. Why would you have mentioned MasterCard? So MasterCard are the issuer, MasterCard and Visa, the two main issuers in South Africa. So even though the bank would, would put a card out on a bank account, it's still underwritten by a MasterCard or a Visa association. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Give me a sense of how big you are. You mentioned 200 when you first started out. How many active users do you have? Can you give us an indication of you know how much money you're clearing, uh, things of that nature? What it costs you to enlist a new a new client? Those kind of things. I think one of the biggest costs still is the is the onboarding of a new customer. Um, we still have to go through what we call a FICO or KYC. So that's qu- it's quite expensive process. It's um, it's still quite paper based to a large degree to get a full account open. Um, so that's the, I guess, the costly part and it's quite time consuming. Not so much for us, but for somebody opening a bank account to go and get all the, the paperwork that's needed is uh, it's usually not on hand. So so that's one of the, the difficult parts or kind of one of the, the challenges that we have to overcome. Um, at the moment, we've got around 10,000 merchants on our books and this last 12 months, we did just under 11 billion in transaction value. So it sounds a lot, but in terms of a market share, it's less than 2% of the market share. Then if you throw cash into still the real biggest um, the biggest tender for, for payment, it's less than 1% market share. That's the thing. I love you that you said that we, we go by oversimplification is the enemy here. And um, for all the for every story we hear about mobile money and Mpesa and other you know good things, too few people are mentioning that the biggest incumbent is cash. Sure, it's still our biggest competitor, really is. And, and you know, in South Africa, we we're quite different in 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 SA compared to a lot of other markets. Where here, we're not hindered by the number of bank accounts open or the number of cards in circulation. I think about 80 million was the last time I looked at this. So for every economic active person, there's probably two and a half cards available. So we're unlike a lot of other African countries in particular, they don't have a lot of cards in circulation. They're still trying to get people to get a bank account. Here we've, we've, that problem's been solved primarily. So it really becomes about the ability to use the card in such a way that you get becomes into habits. And I think that's the biggest struggle here is 
how do you change the habit of going to an ATM, drawing out your money that you've got to spend for the week? It's easy to manage it, you know. I've spent a hundred, I've got two hundred left for the week. It's very, it becomes um, habitual, and that's how you manage your your budget. And and getting the change in that habit is, I think, the biggest factor to reduce cash. I think it's that, and the fact that the banks are still charging way more than they should for the privilege of being able to transact on your own account. From a merchant point of view, I think the, you know, since we've come into the market, fees to merchant dis, uh, discount fees, merchant acquiring fees, which is a percentage of the transaction, it's, it's more than halved in the, in 10 years. No small thanks to Capitec. <laughs> <laughs> this is not Capitec. This is really the payment service providers. So Capitec on the consumer side, I think has done an amazing thing for bank accounts and the cost of a bank account in terms of a. You're talking merchant fees. Okay. I'm talking merchant fees for a retailer. You know, the, those fees from payments service providers such as ourselves and others that are out there really brought competition to the market for the first time and fees have probably they've just just over half is that an admission that we've been overcharged for ages and for no apparent reason <laughs> sure they put an oligopoly in any market and fees go up and service goes down and that's what it was for many many years yeah so you know make a case for why plastic isn't going away though so many technologies to point at, you know, the disruptive influence of mobile money led by and large by telcos who have taken advantage of their big scale advantages. Um, and of course, you know, the massive books of business and standing infrastructure to essentially disrupt finance. And, uh, and then of course, startups in the space who will not be, you know, deterred by their lack of a financial services license or anything of the sort uh, to come up with great ideas and, and, and basically make mobile money a thing in a way that it hasn't been for the last 10 years. So in the context of that trend, and I haven't even touched on decentralized technologies like blockchain and crypto and other things, why is plastic a thing in your mind? I think the the associations or the manufacturers or the, 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 the proponents of plastic – um, in what 1970 or the late 70s, we're talking about you know, cash disappearing, and we certainly haven't seen that happen. So, so there's a place for new technology, and there's no doubt. And the the thing I like about new technology is it's not it's not going to replace plastic. It may replace some of it. Um, a lot of it focuses on replacing cash, but really what it is doing is it's changing the interaction between the customer and the retailer, and. Instead of a one-size-fits-all credit card into a card machine, the customer experience is changing. For example, you'll be sitting at your restaurant and you can definitely pay from your, from your phone. It's a much simpler, less friction in terms of a client experience. So I don't think that plastic is broken for many, um, many events and with contactless there now. You know, it really is to, to take out your card, tap it against a, ma a machine and walk away. That's going to be around for a long, long time until, until the technology gets there that makes it more convenient. Because the real driver of a change in technology is about convenience to the consumer. And sometimes these new technologies that are out at the moment, it's clunky. That, you know, when you're in a queue in front of, at a teller, it's a clunky experience to pull out your phone, open the app, and try and make a payment with that. Samsung Pay, probably the closest to getting it right, certainly in South Africa. So I was going to say, right, there's, there's obviously 
you know, competitors to exactly what you do, the likes of Ikoka, perhaps Yoko. But then there's also Snapscan and there's, you know, you've mentioned Samsung Pay and, and perhaps what Amazon is trying to induct by owning an entire platform of, of value where, frankly, just stay in this ecosystem. Like, wh- what do you see as the biggest potential disruption to where you are now? Okay. And, and I, and I use the word disruption carefully. I just say maybe competitive, competitive technology or trend, uh, to where you are now. And then think in terms of where, think in terms of your roadmap or your, pla- your, your platform roadmap. I, I assume you must have one. Talk about what's influencing, you know, that strategy or that vision. So, so Amazon is doing some amazing stuff, which I think from a, an African, South African point of view, it's, it's years away. And, and one of the biggest hindrance in that space is the cost of setup. Um, it's $160,000, I think, $180,000 was the last, um, cost to set up a Amazon Go store. So yeah, so they, they represent the ultimate platform play, right? So we're a long ways from there, but where are we in fact? And what, what's closer home, if you, if you like? So, so, and then it gets to really around, we're very excited about the likes of Samsung Pay and that type of technology coming here because what that's really doing is it's increasing the use of a card. It's just a different way to present the same thing. And all of our devices, um, our technology that's set up is for acceptance of I'm going to say electronic tender of different kinds. And that's how we see our role to play. The, the, the smaller merchant or the independent retailer, uh, Zapper, Snapscan, which is really the QR codes. The challenges that they have with that is they need a contract with a bank or SureSwipe for acceptance of card. They need a contract with Snapscan. They need a contract with Zapper and multiple contracts, multiple settlements increased complexity, increased time to recon. So it just what happens is from a business owner point of view, and, and one of the biggest challenges a, a small business has is access to time. So this level of complexity is just creating more and more admin and reducing the time that they have to work on their business. So what we see as the role of SureSwipe or the others is really to sit in front of that and be an aggregator for all legal tender maybe not cash, but certainly from all digital, where we can present it in a way what's very easy for the, for the retailer, very easy from a recon point of view, and really just simplifying their life. And so from that standpoint, really the notion of a crypto-led future or you know, a, a, a virtual contract-led future is no threat to your business per se in that context. As long as we have the ability to accept it as a mechanism of payment and present it in a way that the retailer can use as part of his in-store experience. So presumably a future where the agreements you have currently with like MasterCard, you might have at some point similar agreements with the likes of Luno as, a, as an exchange, you know, as a crypto exchange, for example. Yeah, that, that's exactly the, the, the future that we're talking about. So, you know, Bit, Bitcoin or another type of cryptocurrency can be a legal tender. They'll come in and they'll just, they'll need a way to accept it. They'll need a way to make sure that it gets transferred into their account and they'll need a trusted source that can provide the information where a retailer can do the recon that what I'm getting paid is what, uh, what was promised to me either yesterday or today. So because you and I both live in Africa, we, you know, you told me you've got about 10,000 active merchants right now. Uh, I know just how impressive that number is because we live here. 
And because I know where we are in terms of, you know, the digital transformation journey we're, we're on as a continent. How much pressure are you under to, to justify, you know, this growth story or to create a growth story that matches stuff that we've come to expect from startups that are venture backed and sort of surfing growth that it's just spurred on by, you know, conspicuous spending on paid acquisition of customers and things of that nature. You know, I, I suppose I'm trying to get into your startup founders mindset in terms of gauging what was a good day today, you know, whether this year we actually hit our targets, you know, are we growing fast enough? Um, are we making enough money? Is our bottom line sufficient? How much are we reinvesting? Give me a sense of, you know, your thinking around that. So we've been quite fortunate because we started from a from a trading company uh, from Healthbridge. We and they still are a majority shareholder. We've we haven't had the, I guess the expectations of outside investors, private equity investors, VC investors. So from that point of view, it's been a lot of self-driven around what are the expectations coming out of SureSwipe and 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 and, and our team. And part of that is we've. We've got to get a balance. I think it's, you know, you can, we can get lots of devices out in the market. We can open up lots of accounts, but we've got to get the right balance between devices out there and use on those devices. Because from an annuity point of view, one is a, it could be a once off sale or it could be a rental, but the revenue is really earned through how that device is used. So what's the transaction value going through our, our, our base of our estate of devices. Can I just pause you there? Like what sort of value are you gleaning from that? So what are you making on the average transaction? How much are you relying on, you know, the, the fees you charge for the use of your devices? How, how much of your model relies on the actual transactions? So for us, it's uh, around 75, 78% of our revenue is annuity based on transactions. So if the, if the December, of course, a wonderful time at Christmas where people go and spend in store, for us, that's an amazing month. You know, we'll do, last year, December, we did over a billion rand in, in, in one month. Uh, this December will probably be about 1.4. That's the expectation. Even in a very depressed economic market in South Africa where retail is down for the year, we still see, uh, expect a very good December coming up. So what do you take on the rand? <laughs> So, so it's a percentage base. So around, it's a competitive information. Well, listen, I have to ask. I have to ask. <laughs> um, I think if we look at it from an industry point of view, when we first started, industry average was around four, four and a half percent. I think the industry average now is somewhere between two point two and two point four percent. And you're doing better than that. Around there. Right, that's a shame. I am putting him on the spot, but I, I got to do the job. No, I mean, I, I, of course, I can answer kind of where we where we fit from a from a pricing point of view. We're very competitive as an as a business, and it depends on the size of the of the merchant. So it depends on the transaction fees that go through. Our standard pricing is sliding scale. So you know, you start uh, if you're only doing ten thousand rand or a thousand dollars a month, it starts at one price. But if that goes, if if your value increases, automatically your your fees go down. So from that point of view, that's kind of how the pricing model works. It's a very competitive market. We're almost almost into a price taker market. Um, so we, we compete with the major banks at a pricing point of view, and then we just offer much better service levels. Okay, so that was a, a, a really long detour. But back to your, to your psyche as a founder, you know, how do you balance 
your personal expectations for where this business needs to go, how quickly it needs to grow. You're probably benchmarking against the likes of Yoko who are taking on venture capital and obviously, you know, ramping up that way. And you probably look sideways and go, oh, you know, what should we be doing back into that? Yeah. So, I mean, Yoko have done amazing. They've got a wonderful story. I think, what, 25,000 devices in the market in five years. I mean, it's a really, really wonderful story. And they Except we don't know what it's costing them. We don't know if it's sustainable. Again, because they're, they're venture-backed, you know, lots of cards held to their chest and so on. I have no idea how good a story that is, given some of, you know, the, the, the fundamentals I've described. Uh, so, I mean, the key thing you look at, and that's kind of where I mentioned earlier, it's not about the, for us, it's not about the number of devices we get out there. It's about the, the transaction we get through those devices. So, so they talk about 25,000 devices or so. Um, probably, so they're three times the number of devices that we have in the market. They're probably 20% of the transaction value on an annual basis. So that'll just give some context into that type of business. But they they operate in a very very unique market, which is really the the more informal entry level devices um, and entry level merchants, and they're moving slightly up the up the value. Um, but typically, you know, their merchants are doing very very little transaction value. It's just a matter of selling a card machine, which is really around hardware sales. So fortunately, we're not driven by the number of accounts we open or the number of devices we get in the market. We really look at it from a transaction value through the, the de- value through those devices and, and what gross profit and net profit we can make on that. So what are the real returns to, to shareholders? And from what I can tell so far, from what I know about your business, no real pressure to like go multi-market anytime soon across the continent. Um, give me your thoughts about when or when not to take that step. So, so we've always taken a little bit of a fast follower. Um, I'm not sure outside of e-com, I think some e-commerce have some wonderful examples around the continent of success there. Not as many in terms of um, in-store card acceptance or physical card present. Because of, because of this, uh, this almost a, I guess a blue ocean, but very, very unknown market space in, in Africa, and this fast follower approach that we've often had, we'll, we'll wait to see what success others have first before we go outside the borders. And we've got no pressure from our shareholders. They're really looking at saying, you know, what is the best return they can get on the capital that they've got employed with us? And, and no FOMO? Because, I mean, you've got to look at Nigeria and Ethiopia, and the East African region, and just go in general and just go, hmm, maybe we should be over there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, there's a wonderful opportunities in those markets, but we've got to think about and look back and say, we, we know the South African market really well. We, we, you do have you know, limited by the amount of resources you have and whether that's financial resources or the people that you can bring on board quick enough to scale. It's, it's one of the challenges we have. And as I said, we're 1% market share in South Africa. So opportunities here are still, it's immense. So let's talk about your platform play, quote unquote, assuming you have one. I'm, I'm sitting in front of an empty whiteboard. <laughs> let's pretend this was a board meeting and you guys were vision casting for the next five years. What would be on that whiteboard? Would it be a lending play like Yoko's doing? Would it be a strategic merger acquisition involving something like Luno or, or Bitpesa? What are you betting on? Um, so, so we're betting on, it's, it's, it's a, obviously it's a growth strategy still at this stage because of the, the, the opportunity that's there. And 
it's a combination of a few of those, really. I think one is our current shareholders are in discussions to to exit, and that will that will consolidate a lot of the some of the players in this market where we'd have the ability to really have a, a strong business focus on the different market segments in terms of the informal. Um, kind of independence and even into the tier tier two tier one retailers so that's quite an exciting opportunity it really brings probably for the first time that could bring the the real scale into a payment service provider that's the one side and and those conversations continue so it's a readjustment of your risk profile by basically allowing your major shareholders right now to to exit so that you know you can you can mess about without putting (laughs) their investment at risk no, I just think, you know, they've been wonderful shareholders, but it gets to a time where the, 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 the requirements from a business point of view and the requirements of shareholders, they, they, they don't add up. So there's, you know, as they exit, the, the, the preferred bidders have got, um, they've got access to new markets. They've got access to, they've got companies that they own within the South African market. And it's a great merger opportunity and a consolidation opportunity. And hopefully your, your strategies are aligned with those new bidders. That's exactly. So, and that's it. So, so that's on the, I guess, a market consolidation side. So the probability of that happen is, is quite uh, imminent from a, product point of view and not kind of a product roadmap or a platform roadmap that you talk about we really look at things like from an independent retailer what are the things that they struggle with most cost of banking cost of uh, acquiring was a massive problem for for retailers and it still is so we're still looking at ways how do we get that cost down um, and that's one problem we, we we're in the process of solving the other one is really around allowing independent retailers the ability to communicate with their customers to provide loyalty programs uh, to provide market insights client insights so that's something that we we're looking at and and we've we've got we've got a product out there probably still in a mvp stage but certainly it's a gift and loyalty product that's that allows small retailers to communicate and, and market products to their customers. And then finally, we've, we, we partnered with Retail Capital, um, one of the, the initial merchant uh, cash advance companies. So we partnered with them three years ago, four years ago. So we've got quite a successful lending book um, in collaboration with Retail Capital already. Here's an idea for you that uh, you're welcome to, to steal. I mean, we've, we've had on the show um, folks from a company called Zing, Zing Holdings. It'd be interesting if a player like you did something in the token space as a means to scaling. That would be interesting, you know, dabbling in remittances perhaps. I don't know. Uh, when you talk tokens, what do you mean by, by tokens? It's- so Zing essentially, um, and I'll, say, I'll share the link with you afterwards, but Zing essentially um, allows for now Zimbabwean citizens based here looking to remit funds via their platform they are they have a registered entity here one in mauritius and obviously one in zimbabwe you buy their tokens via a an app and essentially through that ecosystem you are able to effectively transact uh, across borders via these tokens that you essentially buy on their platform so again a very clever solve for uh, borderless trade um, or at least a trade that would have otherwise been inhibited by very expensive borders and controls. Yeah, sure. And I think one of the one of the things we do have is we've got ten thousand points of presence out there, and and certainly from a enablement point of view, we do have the ability to turn those acceptance points into 
any kind of digital tokens. So yeah, they could be sold uh, in store, or pe- people can go in and buy the buy the token through through one of our card machines, and we can facilitate the payment. Yeah. I bet you the folks at Zing are listening to me going, why are you putting, well, you were on the show a couple of weeks ago. It's your fault. <laughs> no, no, uh, you know. Or maybe you guys should just get together and merge. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we often looking at saying, you know, we've got these, this point, 10,000 devices, points of presence out there, you know, how, how can, how can we capitalize on those as assets? So open to all discussions. It must be really exciting to be you right now. I mean, or anyone in, in a well-run organization within the space and a well-run business in the space. Good businesses are generally hard to come by, but being positioned to take advantage of a couple of key trends, big data, uh, remittances, payments, all these wonderful things that uh, potentially can take us you know, from zero to one as a, as a continent in terms of digital transformation must be a really exciting time. To be a fly on the wall in your boardroom would be fun, but I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything you haven't been asked that you wish people would probe, but just... We, you know, interviews never quite get there. Yeah, that's it's great. I'm glad you did because I think I've got one. And it's really around, you know, there's a lot of hype in fintech and there's a lot of hype in technology companies. And I often say to the team, you know, we try and have a lot of fun in this business. And, and, and part of the reason for that is we are – Although we're in a payment, finance, or technology space, we're actually retailers, and we, we keep retail hours, and so we're always on. So it's a quite, you know, it sounds very sexy in fintech and payments, but it's, it's tough being always on 24-7 because that's when our clients operate. And um, so to counter that, you know, we try and make sure we have a lot of fun in the business. So tell me, though, you've just given me one last question I have to ask around this hype question, which is you must have pet peeves. You know, when you read, you know, the PR journalism in the space or the hype journalism in the space, and there must be things that leap out at you and just go, you know, for me, it's the, it's the phrase leapfrog or the, the word leapfrog. It, it just annoys me. But I mean, what grates you or impact investment? That's, the, that's my other bugbear, you know, when it's lazily unpacked or, or put forward. Like what, what in your space? It doesn't sit well with you in terms of the realities of working in the trenches of the of the industry you're in versus the perception out there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's anything to do with the hype of the of of any of the um, the interviewers or any of the the journalists. It's really for for us the what irks me really is around the inability for the regulator to keep pace with innovation and the the weak spot on transactions. It, in my view, is still the bank, um, and we, you know, we we forced to go via banks into the into the rails for for processing. But from a from a reliability of product to the to the consumer and to the to our customer, who's really the retailer, they're still the weakest link. Well, we will leave it here. Thank you so much, Paul Kent, uh, founder and CEO of SureSwipe. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you.